Last week, uh, Justin brought the message, and I'm just going to say that if you're a parent or you have influence over students, anybody that hasn't yet graduated from high school, let's say, you're a grandparent, you're an aunt, you're an uncle, you, if you didn't hear that message, you need to hear that message. That, that was for you. And Justin kept this theme of going of how will we have faith, how will we pass on faith in the series Beyond Religion. We've been looking at what does it mean to have faith and how do you have faith in the presence of a culture that's not designed and has no intent to support your faith. And the takeaway from Justin's message was you can't do this alone. This is... The idea that it does take a church to come together. It does take a group of believers to come together, and your faith is encouraged, and the faith of whoever you're trying to influence is encouraged. And we cannot do this alone. And I, through that, beyond the, the sermon service that we're running through this series, I received so many feedbacks that says we buy into the lie that we can do it on our own. That we buy into this idea that I can go at it solo. And it was never designed to be a solo experiment. Last week, the reason Justin was up is because we had the opportunity to go and celebrate Caden, my son, who was asking Courtney Latham to become his future bride. And the engagement with that, and I know you saw some pictures. I'm going to show you one picture, though, from that that this was from the engagement party, and this is Caden, and this is Courtney. And Erica had this idea at the party because Erica had observed what was going on. And Erica says, let's get a Western Hills picture together. And this is taken in Abilene, yet all these people in this picture have had experience through this church. And if you don't recognize on the end, this is Ellie Berry, and if you remember Nathan and Lisa Berry from many, many years ago, I realize that not all of you come from that far back, but that's she was a small child when she left, and now she's a graduating senior from Abilene Christian. What strikes me about this picture, I thought, there it is. There's a sample of what it means to come together and not do faith on your own the connections, the relationships, the friendships, the support is exemplified that. And wouldn't we want to pass that on to the next generation? And so today we're going to come into the chapter 5 of this letter that we've been exploring, 1 Peter. It's a letter written by one of the apostles, in fact, a man that was there at the very beginning, that made all kinds of mistakes, made all kinds of mess-ups, and yet when the time came, Jesus says, I'm handing over the mission to this ragtag group of guys, to those that had come around them. It was just a small group at the time. And it takes off and it begins to grow and it grows to where it leaves not it leaves Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And now there are Christians scattered around through many places in the known world at the time. 
And they're starting to undergo persecution. The culture is not on their side. And so people are wrestling with their faith. What do you do when you, when you have faith and you have a belief system that goes counter to most of what culture does? That runs across the grain. That goes upstream from it. And so Peter writes this letter and he's encouraged them on how to hang on to your faith. And the theme verse of it is 315. It says, I want you to be able to have an answer for the hope that we have. And it doesn't say just hope, like I'm wishing for a better day to come. He calls it a living hope. And what it's saying is that you have a hope that's already been to the grave and walked out of the grave because your hope is not simply based in a religion, but it is beyond that. It is a relationship with the one that overcame death. And when we get into chapter 5, it seems so pragmatic when he gets there. It seems so pedestrian almost, because he's going to start talking about how you do church. How should church even be organized? And he's going to give us some principles. And at one reading real quickly, you're real tempted to just kind of go past this because it just doesn't seem like, well, that's not a deep section. That's just tips. That's just suggestions. But I want us to walk through chapter 5. In fact, we're not even going to cover the whole chapter today. We're going to take care of the first five verses only because I think there is something in this sermon and next week's, as we look at these passages in chapter 5, that, God, that Peter is trying to leave these final words of encouragement, these final words of instruction on how you can have faith so that not just you, but our children that are growing up, this 108 that Rachel was talking about, as they grow up, there's a lasting faith. Because one of the things that, as I've done research for this series... When they talk to people or they survey people that have had a faith, that they were regular in church, but then they grew up, they graduated, and they moved on to whatever next was in life, they've given up on their faith, they walked away from the church, or a combination of both, there are many, many times when what they'll say is, I looked back on my church experience, and I found it lacking. All of the people that I thought I knew so well growing up, I see them as hypocrites now. Or I see them as just shallow. I see them as only worried about the externals. Or perhaps only worried about themselves. And so what is being reported back is that a, a sort of deficit in the church experience that someone has growing up leads them with lots of questions when suddenly the, the real tough questions of life come hitting them. They look back on the church experience and say, I didn't get any of the answers there. And I don't see any sources of wisdom there to go back to. And so Peter is going to talk about how we do church together and he's going to talk about leaders and followers. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to look. We'll be in chapter 5. Like I said, we're only going to take the first uh, 
five verses of this together. So chapter 5 starts this way. So we're just going to do the first four right now. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter starts with leadership. He starts at, at the ones that are charged to guide the organization. Now, some of these languages may not be familiar to you, but the men that lead our church, the ones that, that I am in submission to in my role, the ones that, that guide our church are known as our elders or our shepherds. And what um, Peter does is he brings those two roles together. Elders kind of got the idea of oversight. But shepherd has a completely different kind of idea. And it's one that every reader would have been very familiar with because it would have been plucked right out of their daily experience. Now, shepherding is not so much in our daily experience. You know, if I gave some illustration about your iPhone or your, your smartphone, you know, almost all of us have some connection to that. Most of us don't have a sheep somewhere back home at the house. But everyone reading this letter would have known exactly and intimately what he was talking about because it was just part of the culture. And what he's doing is he's bringing this oversight idea and he's bringing this care idea because that's the role of a shepherd is to care for the sheep. A shepherd is not there to make sure that the sheep are comfortable that's not the role of the shepherd. A shepherd is not there to poll the sheep and see what the sheep would like to do next. That's not the role of a shepherd. A, a shepherd is, is not there to make sure that the sheep's feelings never get hurt. That's not the role of the shepherd. The role of a shepherd is to do that which is necessary for the health and the blessing of the flock. Now, let's be clear. The shepherd doesn't own the flock. So what Peter does, he does not compare the shepherds, he does not compare the elders to the owners of the flock. And that's going to be really important. He says they're the shepherds, they're the caretakers. They're the ones that serve the flock. And notice how he starts out. Back in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, we could run past that one real quick, but what Peter's doing is he's already modeling that which he wants them to understand. He's already modeling the idea because Peter could say, and he actually says earlier in this letter, I, as an apostle, 
over the elders, here's my instructions for you. Make sure you do it this way. He doesn't appeal from a place of authority. He could have, but he chooses not to very intentionally because that's not his leadership model. That's not the one that he wants to see used in the churches. He appeals to him as a fellow elder. He says, I as one of you, I know what it is to care for a church. I know what it is to care for people. I know what it is to walk alongside them. As one like you, I'm appealing to you. And then listen to how he describes it. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising your oversight. There's that elder role. But how do you exercise your oversight? As a shepherd. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then he gives the final model. He gives the example. And when... The chief shepherd appears. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. He points it all right back to Jesus. The chief shepherd. Now, where, would you ask, did Peter pick up his leadership model from? Where did he get this idea from? Well... Peter followed this chief shepherd for three years, intimately, walked with him, learned from him. And oftentimes, Peter didn't pick up on the lesson. But there is a message that Peter eventually got. And there was a sermon that he heard. And it was directed right at he and his fellow apostles, he and the fellow disciples. And it's found in a couple places, but I'm going to go to Mark chapter 10. If you just want to jot down this reference, you can. But in Mark 10, there's an interesting thing that takes place. Two of the disciples that are following Jesus, James and John, they get an idea because they can tell Jesus is on the rise. And he's headed somewhere. And his popularity is gaining. And so they clearly got it figured out. Jesus, you're in the number one slot We'd like to talk to you about slots two and three. You're clearly the CEO, but we'd like a couple of vice president seats. And so their idea is, let's go, let's have a conversation with Jesus, and let's, say, let's see if we can't reserve our seats on the left and right of him. You know, we'd like, we'd like some power when this pays off. In fact, they do something interesting they get their mama involved. I don't know if it's mom, you like him, or mom, you're pretty hard-nosed, or whatever. You go, you go tell him that we'd like to be number two and number three in this organization because we like the in-chargeness of this. So let's pick up the story in verse 41. Two of them. Remember, there's 12. And so, when the 10 heard about this, translation, when the other staff members got wind of it, they became indignant with James and John. Do you know why they became indignant? It's not because of the request. 
is because they've been beaten to the punch. Why didn't we think of that? If this is open bid season, why didn't I put my request in? Jesus called them together and said, and I just wonder what kind of tone when he called this meeting. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Notice the words he's using. Then he looks them right in the eyes. And he says, that's how it's done. Out there, outside of my kingdom, outside of my followers, it's done with a power up, power down type model. And he looks them right in the eyes and he says, not so with you. That is not the value structure we're going to use inside this effort. Not so with you. Instead, and he flips it completely around. Whoever wants to belong to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He turns the whole thing upside down. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't scold them for wanting to be great. Okay? It's important. He doesn't get on to them for I want you for your aspirations to be great. He's just about to redefine great. Notice what he says. He says, if you want to be great, here's the pathway. Here's the curriculum. Here's the strategy for being great. And he goes on with this upside-down way of thinking. He says, whoever wants to become great among you, what do you do? You become the servant. This is not a race to the top of the mountain. This is a race to the bottom. You get in the business of not competing against each other to get to the top you see what it's like to compete each other to outserve one another. He's not saying there's not a leadership role here. He's saying we lead in a completely different way. He's telling these, this group of guys, he says, there's going to come a short time from now. You don't even know what's going to come, but we're going to call it Pentecost after it happens. And at Pentecost, this whole effort's going to blow up to 3,000 people. And at that moment, the lights are going to be bright, and they're going to be on you, and you're going to be leading this effort and this, this adventure, and there's going to be all kinds of people that are clamoring to get to know you. When that happens, you do not lord it over them. You lead differently. You shepherd differently. And he goes to the idea, at that moment, when you're the leader you're the servant. So I want you to take away from this, greatness is defined by service, not status. Jesus is telling Peter, who's now telling us, it's a different model when it comes to the kingdom of God. We're not chasing after rank. We're not chasing after position. 
We are chasing to serve one another. And if you think about the need for that inside of a church, both then and now, because if we will grab hold of this idea of what it means to serve as our way to become great, that will put us distinctly from our culture. When the culture says, you've got to grab what you can for you, it's all limited, you've got to look out for number one, hang on to yourself. Don't give an inch. Don't back down. In fact, we have phrases. That's a self-made man. That's a self-made woman. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Greatness is defined by servant. I was blessed in my youth ministry when I was part of a youth group growing up. One of my best friends named Perry. Perry was the best among us. Because Perry had a servant's heart that to this day, I wish I had. In fact, Perry was such a servant that at one point, our youth minister decided he was going to try to you know, build up the idea of service in each of us. And, and so he created a kind of an award, I would call it more of an acknowledgement of a servant towel. He was taking the idea right from the evening when Jesus stoops to wash feet. Jesus becoming a servant to all. The greatest in the room washes the feet of all in the room. So he had a towel and he had servant monogrammed on it and what he was going to do is he was going to encourage a person a month and say hey this person I've seen the the value of being a servant in them, and here's some of the ways they serve. Well, he, I don't know if, I can't remember if he polled or asked, but we were all like, yeah, Perry, you know, give it, give it to Perry. And so the day he's going to announce this, it's a Sunday morning, we're gathered, large youth ministry, large youth group there. He talks about the towel, he goes through the whole deal, and then he says, and Perry, if you'll come up, I'd like to just honor you for being such a servant. Perry wasn't in the room. Not because he was at home, because he was in the three-year-old's teaching class that day. None of us were doing that. So I said, who's number two? No. <clears throat> but that's the kind of person Perry was and still is to this day. Serving, serving, serving. Because the way to greatness is not through status, it is by service. And did you notice all the language where he said the, the Gentiles, those that were not yet part of this movement that they were part of, they lord it over, they exercise over. Every one of us are familiar with a top-down structure, aren't we? Who's large and who's in charge? And how can I work the system that way? But he says, you don't do it that way. And so Peter brings this message to shepherds and elders in a local church. And so the idea is not that we as followers of Christ, we don't lord it over others. But disciples lift others up. 
We don't lord it over other people. We lift others up. And Peter begins by saying, there's what a shepherd does. A shepherd lifts others up. Again, it's not that they get to make all the decisions and they're large in charge. It's that they're out being the leaders in the flock by being the leaders that serve first. And this is a difficult job. But I'm proud to say that there's been a great history of this church of men that have served in this fashion. And they've been this kind of shepherding leader, not to lord it over, but to lift up. Currently, five men serve this church. Here's their picture up here. And they're not paying me to say this. Well, they pay my salary, so maybe in a way, I don't know. They don't know I'm going to say this. I am so grateful for them. Because so much of what they do goes unseen by the majority of the church. Not because they're trying to hide it, or, but just because it's such one-on-one with individuals and with couples and with families and with parents and children and, and all the different ways that it takes place. That they are shepherds out there among the flock. It has been my privilege and my honor to witness them as they've stepped into some very, very messy situations. I've watched them walk into difficult marriages where it's already frayed. It's already coming apart. And they pray and they cry and they share and they're vulnerable. And sometimes there's a happy outcome and sometimes there's not. It's the reason that we have the re-engage ministry here. Where they're coming and they even share their own struggles inside of marriage. I've watched them share with parents in difficult parenting situations. With children that perhaps are going through either something physical, something emotional, a series of decisions and life choices that breaks your heart with and they've stepped into those. I've seen them sit for hours at a time listening and crying. And and they'll be the first to tell you. They don't have all the answers. It's not like they show up and they pull their elder app up on their phone and go, okay, it's grief, here's the answer. Okay, it's struggle, it's here's the answer. But they're there. They're praying and they're caring 
and they're serving. I've watched them through the benevolent generosity of this church show up, and some of you this has happened to, they'll show up unexpected and they're bringing a prayer and a check because it needs to happen. And I've watched them oftentimes fund that check out of their own pockets. They did not take this job because they thought, what's the way that I get to be in charge? But they've made themselves available to serve And what Peter is telling us is is when they serve like the chief shepherd serves, the one that laid down his life, a ransom for all, when they serve like that, God steps into that. And that church becomes a place, becomes a community of faith, becomes a sanctuary where faith can grow and weather whatever storm comes its way. That's why Peter says this is so important. But he also has a word for those of us that aren't the shepherds. That are still called to serve and seek one another. 1 Peter 5, 5, we'll finish out this way. Likewise, meaning just like the elders, just like the shepherds. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Can we just be honest? We don't do submission really well, do we? Nobody signs up for that. What Peter is about to tell us is that our fellowship is just as important as leadership. Sub, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is one of those verses, that again, I, I wrestled with at the very beginning because I was wondering what... Is here for us because I read this verse with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what I would call one of those refrigerator magnet verses. It sounds nice, it sounds sweet, so we put it on the magnet, we put it up on the refrigerator, or maybe some of you needle point it, you make a plaque out of it, it's a sticker, whatever. It's just sweet. I'm going to tell you, if we pay attention to this verse, it's got a real set of teeth that come with it that we need to pay attention to. Because this act with humility, that doesn't come easy. Notice there's a warning with it. Be with humility towards one another, but the last sentence is, For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is how critical this is. There's a warning associated with it. 
that God will oppose you if you're not approaching this life together with an amount of humility. Why? Because so much is at stake. So here's just a way to remember it. Be humble or you will stumble. That's what God's trying to get across. Be humble or you will stumble. And he has to say this because we don't do humility well. We choose something else. Okay, so here's my confession today. When I was, when I went through college, my very first ministry job was with a large church in Abilene. And I was the youth minister. I'd started as the intern. I moved up, associate youth minister, youth minister. I took over a very large youth ministry. So at a very young age, I just felt like a golden boy. I thought, I am the stuff. I had undergraduates at the time that were also Bible majors in youth ministry that they wanted to know what I thought because I was so seasoned and experienced. I had like 18 months under my belt. You know, they wanted to be my intern. I, I occupied a certain place where, where I knew that I'm pretty well in the second or third slot on youth. You know, this is James and John kind of stuff. I had a phone call one time. And it was from another very large church that said, we'd like you to come be our youth minister. And boy, I just thought that, man, they've got good taste. <laughs> Until I asked my next question. I said, what have you heard about me? They said, nothing. <laughs> We're calling any church youth minister that has a, from a church of a thousand or more. That was their strategy. I kept that pace up for a while, and God blessed, and I have incredible memories, and so God was at work even in my ill motives. But I started facing some burnout. And after a while, I decided I would step down from that role. And I stepped down without much of a plan. And so I went from that to till I could figure out what was next for me and what God had in store for me. I started waiting tables at a Mexican food restaurant called Abuelos. Well, when you start out in food service, if you know anything about it, you get the, the lowest desired shift. Does anybody want to guess what that is? Sunday lunch. Because the church people are going to show up. You would have thought I would have been excited about this, but now what, I, what occurred to me was, I'm going to be waiting tables. And the undergraduate students that had previously sought my input and sought to be close to me, and wanted to know all the wise things that I had to say, they were going to tell me if they wanted flour tortillas or corn tortillas. 
And I had to figure out who am I without my role. I had to figure out what it meant to actually be, in every sense of the word, a servant to them. Humility doesn't come easy. For me, it was humiliation. And I'm going to tell you that those words sound alike, but they are vastly different. And which one you choose to embrace will have everything to do with your faith. Because they operate differently. And Satan would have you choose humiliation every single time. Because when we have a sense of shame, for whatever reason, when we have a sense of doubt like that, humiliation, it isolates us, doesn't it? But humility has the power of drawing us back together. Humiliation pulls us apart. Humility pulls us together. And so in my humiliation, I didn't want to have anything to do with church people. I wanted to withdraw. And maybe you've been there. Maybe it's not just because you had to wait tables. Maybe it's something far more serious than that. Maybe you've got a sin or a struggle or it's in your marriage or it's an addiction. But the temptation of Satan is to embrace humiliation and draw back from and isolate yourself from the community of faith. And go at it alone. See, now we're back to where we began, right? But with humility, in the presence of others that have already been an example of humility, you can come and say, I'm struggling with this. I'm up against the wall with this. I'm at the end of my rope with this. And then in humility here, we know what that's like. See, that's what Peter says. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is why it is a choice that we must make. The shepherds model it because they learn it from the chief shepherd. And then every chance that you have, when you're in the presence of somebody else and they come to you in a sense of humility and they share something with you, a need, a concern, a burden, whatever that is, you have an opportunity to be the God's conduit of grace in that moment and bless them when you step in and you serve to lift up. What I like to do, I like to pray for you. I like to pray a prayer based on the chief shepherd. And then Cameron will come up and he'll lead us. And after, while we're singing that song, if there's anything that we can pray more with you about, you can come talk to me, our shepherds, and some of their wives will be at the at the doors. If you would, stand with me. The place where we learn about the chief shepherd is a psalm that's very familiar. It's Psalm 23. So if you would, 
Let's pray, and I'm going to ask you to receive this as your blessing today. Psalm 23. Dear Heavenly Father, You are our shepherd. We are your flock. We thank you for your guidance, your provision, and your care. You lead us beside quiet waters, restoring our soul. Lord, in the midst of life's storms and challenges, help us find moments of peace and renewal. We trust your guidance, knowing that you lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Heavenly Father, even the darkest valleys we will fear no evil, for you are with us. It is your rod and your staff that comfort us. Thank you for your protection and your correction. For we know that you discipline those you love. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies and our cup overflows. We are grateful for your abundant blessings and provisions, knowing that you are the provider and the sustainer. Surely goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in your house forever, Lord. May your goodness and love surround us each day, guiding our steps and fulfilling our hearts with your presence. We long to dwell in your house forever and be in your presence eternally. In your name, Heavenly Father, we pray. And together we say, Amen.